All right, go ahead and be seated. All right. Again, here's the chapter outline I provided for you uh, well over a month ago when we kind of did an introduction to this. Uh, You see the the beginning of sorrows, verse 4 through 8, and great tribulation, verse 9 through 28, the abomination of desolation in verse 15, and then the second coming, verse 29 through 31. Now, the question always comes up, you know, when? Uh, When does this occur? Well, when we look back at the prophet Daniel, when we get to verse 15, specifically for next week, we're going to see the prophetic timeline for the duration of these events and where they actually fit in the chronology of history. For now, I think it suffices to say that these events are confined to a seven-year period that lie just before the second coming of Christ. And then belonging to the first half of these events, the, the first half of the seven years, is what Jesus refers to here as the beginning of sorrows, verse 8. And the beginning of sorrows leads to, it, it concludes with, this event known as the abomination of desolation uh, there in the sanctuary of the temple, verse 15. This abominable thing that desecrates the temple, it makes worship there impossible, it leads to what is called the Great Tribulation, verse 21. And then, of course, the Great Tribulation is terminated. Uh, it's brought to an end by the second coming, verse 30. So let's go back to the beginning of sorrows from verse 4 to 8. It's outlined this way. Now, the beginning of sorrows. The Greek word that Jesus used here for sorrows is the word for birth pangs. Birth pangs. And so uh, what he describes is the beginning of labor. And how does labor go? We've had a couple deliveries lately. I think we got about 15 more before June. Ladies, they get better or worse? Worse. Okay, all right. I, I had to ask because, you know, Yeah. He says, the beginning of sorrows begins with many coming in Christ's name, claiming to be the Christ, and as a result, they will deceive many. But understand, this prophetic utterance, like the rest of the sermon, okay, does not apply to the disciples. Jesus is talking to the disciples, but his words are not specifically for them, okay, because they're going to be dead when these things unravel. And we'll talk about this as we go, okay? Their responsibility as the apostles of Christ in our current context is to record and to pass on the prophecies, okay, to succeeding generations until the final generation to which the content of this all applies to specifically. Now, we have to point this out. The experience of the apostles and, and many Christians throughout church history would share you know, similarities with what is recorded here. But just because two things are similar does not make them identical, right? As Greg Kokel says, you know, um, aspirin and arsenic, they both come in pill form. Uh, it's the differences we're concerned about, right? Right? Okay, all right. <laughs> so let's look at some of the differences. For example, while there was deception by way of false Christ during the lives of the apostles, there wasn't much to speak of historically. And none of them were mentioned by the apostles. If that was a primary feature of the first century during the lives of the apostles, don't you think the apostles would mention it in their epistles, in their travels, in their gospel preaching? Yeah. Notice Jesus' words specifically. These people will say, I am the Christ. And then he says, they will deceive many. It wasn't really a thing during the first century. 
okay? The real source of deception in the first century was initially coming from a group of Jews known as the Judaizers. We've talked about them a lot. These guys were famous for trying to get Gentile believers to be circumcised and then to keep the law of Moses, okay? But none of these men claimed to be the Christ, none of them. And then toward the middle of the first century, a false teaching known as docetic Gnosticism, docetic Gnosticism, it began to take shape, but within this developing system, a heresy, there was actually no room for someone to claim to be Christ, but there was space for denying something essential about him. So it was developing in the, in the middle of the first century, but then toward the end of the first century, this became a real concern for John the Apostle. Okay? He mentions this group, and he said that they had a spirit of antichrist. These false teachers, though, they didn't claim to be Christ. They said, Jesus is not the Christ. That's problematic. But they also said that he did not come in the flesh. That's the key component of their false teaching. The the Docetic Gnostics, they flatly denied the incarnation of Christ because they rejected the idea that Christ would actually come in the flesh. This idea of deity becoming a man, they had no room for that in their theology. Not at all. So logically, if the Christ did not, and if he would not come in the flesh, none of these false teachers could be the Christ because they were all corporal. They had bodies. Okay? And they, just, they said the Christ could not have one. So it wasn't actually even in their system of belief for someone to claim to be the Christ. Just to illustrate their kind of wackiness, they would say that if Christ were to walk down the beach, he would leave no prints in the sand because he had no feet to, to put in the sand. You get it? He, he was more of a phantom to them in their theology. So their teaching was certainly contrary to Christ. That's bad enough. But they were trying to draw people away from Christ to this, counter, this counterfeit idea of who, of who Christ is. Very interesting, the Gnostics. So anyway, in the first century, the, the, the two primary sources of deception was from the Judaizers and the Gnostics. Okay? But they could not have fulfilled what Jesus meant here because none of them claimed to be the Christ. Now, As I said, there was some, but never mentioned in the scriptures by the apostles, and they never deceived many. I don't think Jesus was mistaken, okay? I just think a lot of people have the wrong period of time in history at which they try to apply all of this. Another issue that Jesus addresses was war. Now, during the lifetime of the apostles, there wasn't an abundance of nations rising against nations. Well, at least not that would concern the disciples, Okay, the only conflict that was remotely close uh, was in Armenia, way north of Israel. And it was after the Parthians decided to create a vassal state there. And, well, Rome believed that that belonged to them. And so they weren't going to go for that, especially if there was, you know, money involved. And, of course, their pride was at stake, and Rome was very much into Rome. Okay? So it, uh, there was a conflict there, and... Um, the Armenians caught in the middle of it. But something that's interesting is that none of the apostles say anything about it. If this is a primary concern, if this is a, 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 a primary piece of first century concern, deception, signs of the coming, why didn't any of the apostles mention it? And we would expect Paul to, because Paul went to Galatia. That's in the back door there. So 
to all of that stuff. He never mentions it. It was never a concern of his. You know what Paul concerned himself was with the preaching of the gospel and the Judaizers. Nothing about war. Nothing about, you know, we should probably go around. Uh, We should probably back off because of, no. There's zero discussion about it. That is the only conflict that would really be within the knowledge of the apostles. Now, there were some things going on in Britain. Do you think the apostles cared? They probably didn't even know what Britain was. Okay, yeah. So one conflict that, that could fit within what Jesus said here. Now, 400 years after Jesus died, there was this individual called Attila the Hun. He was of great concern to Rome, uh, but certainly wasn't in the lifetime of the apostles. Following the anticipation of wars, famine. Famine often occurs because of, of war. Okay? They destroy farmland, orchards, vineyards, flocks, herds. Farmers are often called to war, or they abandon their fields because of war. And then things are neglected, leads to the death of the harvest, the livestock. Either way, where there are no fields, no flocks, orchards, vineyards, there's no what? There's no food. <clears throat> Next is pestilence. Now, depending on which kind of pestilence uh, can also and often is a product of war. You know, unkept farms and livestock, abandoned homes and crops, unburied corpses, pests taking over commonly lead to all kinds of pestilences, which intensify the effects of war. And then lastly, in the beginning of sorrows, Jesus says there's going to be earthquakes in various places. Now, this is the only feature of the beginning of sorrows that doesn't seem to be caused by human activity. Jesus doesn't say that God is the cause of the earthquakes. He just says that there will be earthquakes in various places. He could be talking about divine activity in the earth's crust, that time of history. I don't know. But like the others, uh, has there always been earthquakes in various places? Okay. But as we've pointed out, Jesus, he's not speaking in general terms. He's prophesying about something specific in history. I mean, if I came to you and I said, hey, listen, there's going to be earthquakes in various places. You would be like, thank you, Captain Obvious. Wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. But if I said there would be earthquakes in various places at a very specific time in history, you would at least know that I was trying to predict something, right? And then all you could do then is just wait to see what happened. Jesus is talking about a specific time in history when things will take shape. Yeah. And we'll be looking at that specific time in history next week in the book of Daniel. Let's move on from the beginning of sorrows to the great tribulation. There's the outline of all of that. So the global hatred of Christians, which hatred leads to tribulation, to persecution. Now, real quick, again, the the hatred of Christians has never been a global phenomenon, but it will be. It will be. And I'm no prophet, but I know Jesus is. At the time of the apostles, you know, Christians sort of became an enemy of the state, but it actually didn't represent the sentiment of, of all of the Israelis in Israel. I mean, for example, by By the time we get to Acts chapter 6, there were more than 15,000 believers among the Jews. Now, in an ancient city, 15,000 believers, as my buddy from Alabama says, that's nothing to spit at. There there aren't very many churches in the world that are 15,000 people. This is a huge population of people. And among them, the scripture says, are priests coming to faith, scribes, and Pharisees. So even among the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, 
the leadership, there are people converting to Christ. It's a big deal. Okay. So while most of the religious leaders hated them, they did not represent all the people. And as far as Rome is concerned, um, the Christians occasionally, we might say, uh, were an enemy of the state. You know, beginning with uh, the psychopath Nero, uh, closer to 70 AD, he blamed them for the fire that was in Rome, and he created extreme hatred uh, at that time for the Christians. But by the time of the beginning of the fourth century, Christianity was legalized, and it became a predominant feature of the empire. Now, of course, for the next 800 years after, Catholicism was the predominant representation of what was considered Christian. And it wasn't until the, the, the Reformation in the 1500s that the gospel emerged with, again, with great influence. Now, of course, that movement became an enemy of the Catholic Church in Europe, an enemy they tried to eliminate, but with to no avail. The first Protestants were protected in Germany. Yeah. And then the movement spread to America, and here we are. There's a few of us, right? Now, there are Americans who hate Christians and Christianity, but it wouldn't be accurate at this juncture of hist in, in history to say that we are hated by the nation, okay? That wouldn't be true yet. I think we're getting there. Today, South Korea is a nation that doesn't hate Christians. Many South American and African countries do not hate Christians. Many of them considered Christian nations. A number of Eastern Europe countries, European countries, they don't hate Christianity. So it cannot be said that all nations have or do hate Christians. At no time in history, have Christians been hated by all nations? Just wouldn't be historically accurate to, to say that. There are nations that hate Christians today, and hatred for Christianity is growing around the world. I believe at an accelerated pace, but it's not true of all nations, not yet. So Jesus' words here have no fulfillment at the time of the apostles, and not to date, but I think it's approaching quickly. Also, on the horizon during this this time of which Jesus speaks, many will be offended and betray one another. Offended. There will be this offense, a, a, a stumbling block. Now, the offense refers to those who profess faith in Christ, but because of the issue of the hatred of Christians and the persecution of them, these false converts will deny Christ to avoid trouble, and they will turn, the Christian, turn over the Christian community and they will betray them to the authorities. They're going to stumble over Christ, as it were. They'll betray. And then in the midst of all this, false prophets will arise. They'll rise up everywhere. They're going to add deception to persecution. This is very interesting, uh, as these things are all crammed in the same context. False prophets in the midst of persecution, what they're going to do probably is add, you know, we might say religious justification for the hatred and persecution of the Christian. Jesus had prophesied earlier that the time is coming when people will think they're doing the will of God by shedding your blood. Paul was the first one. He thought that he was doing the will of God. Okay? That's going to happen. There's going to be justification for it, to persecute the Christian community. You know, we're just, we're just not in line with them in so many ways. I mean, just think of late of what's entered into our culture. We're not inclusive enough. We're not equitable enough. We're not diverse enough. All kinds of name-calling. We're homophobic. We don't believe in personal responsibility. They're anti-everything that we love and stand for. It's just so many bizarre things. 
And then as Christianity diminishes during that time or is forced into hiding, Jesus' lawlessness will abound. You know, it is interesting that it's still the morality of Scripture that connects a specific set of ethics to God. Yes. And, and not just, you know, like goodness for goodness sake or a pagan religion that prescribes its, its own morality that suits its agenda. You know, let me give you an example from history. Most of the framers of our Constitution and, and many of the founders of our nation, they were deists. But their deism was informed and influenced by Christian ethics and morality. You see, their deism was nearly Christian in practice while their confession was not. That's just a fact of history. Then this, along with many Christian thinkers of the time, they laid the foundation for a just and moral society, or at least the best that man could offer. But this is no longer the case. You know, the, the new morality of the West is not informed by Scripture. In fact, you can take all of the moral principles laid down in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and you can find all of those things being attacked in our, our society. And I would be willing to bet that most of those people haven't a clue what Genesis 1 and 2 say. But sin is just flat-out rebellion against God. It knows what to do to irritate the Creator. And the things that are most precious to God are found in the beginning. And they're just assaulting all of that. The new morality is not informed by the Scriptures, but this profane ideology that has everything to do with autonomy from God and just individual pleasure. It's humanism, it's hedonism, it's insanity. The redefining of terms and concepts. When I listen to people in Western culture now talk about truth <laughs> and love, I get very confused. When they talk about equity and justice, purity and morality, but see this consensus is rapidly forming around this anti-Christian ideology. Something that has amazed me of late is just kind of watching the feminist movement uh, unfold and, and interact with all that's happening. You know, it used to be said that a woman who sold her body for sex did so because she was under the oppression of men. But now the woman who sells her body for money is said to be empowered. What? She's empowered? Do you guys remember when Hugh Hefner used to be held in derision by the feminine community? Now, did you see what happened when he died a few years ago? Oh, Hugh Hefner. He just liberated women. What? I listened to a feminist interview, Sir Mix-a-Lot, a local rapper from the 90s, who clearly objectified women. And the feminist that interviewed him was so impressed by him and, and celebrating his music. When did they flip the switch? You know, the problem is, is that they have no true objective moral basis to stand on. And so the rules can change at any time, at any time. And they are. They're just changing all the time. You know, when all that is heard from the church is just an echo, in, 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 especially in Western society, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, America, all that we've influenced through Christian morality, when all of that is just an echo, lawlessness will spread like wildfire, not just in Western culture. It'll just, it'll take over the planet. Moral chaos will abound and the love of many will grow cold. And you know, nothing fuels lawlessness like the absence of truth and love. As we know, even Paul says, love does no harm to his neighbor. But imagine a loveless society. What is to restrain acts of hatred and violence? What is to motivate the protection of the weak and the vulnerable? Nothing, nothing. The only thing left to govern in a world like that is cold, raw power. And that's what's, that's what's coming. That's what they'll get. 
It'll be an ugly world to endure. But as Jesus says, there will be those who survive by the grace of God, verse 13. And then in spite of all that will unfold, the gospel of the kingdom, he says, will reach all nations. Miracle of miracles. And then Jesus says, the end will come. Now, not the end of the world, but in the context, it's the end of the age. This particular world that we now live in, it's governed by the God of this world, who Paul says is Satan, okay? That will come to an end, and a new age will be born. That's later. So here, so far in the chapter, Jesus is communicating a sequence of events from verse 5 through 14 that lead up to the end of the age, okay? And in the text, the, the things grow in intensity. You notice that there's similarities between what happens in the beginning of sorrows and then later in the great tribulation, but they differ greatly by intensity. Things will get worse and worse as the concept of birth pangs imply, and then they will conclude with great travail. Okay? And then, as though things appear to be completely out of control through the progression of all this, the scriptures affirm that the grace of God will ensure that the gospel reaches all people groups till the end of the age. All right, now, in transitioning here, Notice that up to this point, Jesus has focused on things pertaining to all nations. He's taken a global perspective. But in verse 15, his attention is confined to Jerusalem and Judea. Remember, in the last section, he spoke of Christians being hated by all nations and then concluding with the gospel being preached to all nations before the end. He's had a, a global perspective. But now he's gonna, he's gonna focus specifically on Jerusalem and Judea, verse 15 and 16. Let's take a look. And I'll have the passages there for you now. So he's given a, a panoramic view of all things that lead to the end. And then he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Notice that in verse 15, Jesus didn't use the word then to refer to a sequence as he did in verse 9, 10, and 11. But he says, therefore, therefore. This event does not follow in sequence. It doesn't come after the events previously mentioned. Otherwise, it would occur after the end of the age, which is impossible, okay? It's something that happens back. We gotta hit reverse. So the event occurs sometime within the sequence of events previously mentioned. So as all these other things are unfolding around the world, this thing will happen in the holy city, okay? Now, where it fits in that sequence will uh, be discussed next week when we look at Daniel's discussion about it. He'll tell us exactly when it occurs uh, during those things. But for now, let's, let's, let's talk about what rather than when. The abomination of desolation in the holy place. Heard of it? Okay. Now, we know that the abomination of desolation was mentioned for the very first time by Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, he prophesied about this event occurring twice, once prior to the coming of Christ, and then a second time afterwards. The first abominable act that desecrated the temple, it brought all worship to an end. It was on December 25th. Don't worry, it was before Christmas. Okay, 168 BC, by this profane person named Antichius IV Epiphany. He fancied himself the manifestation of God. That's what epiphanies means, okay? 
but not just any god, as we'll see, Zeus, the chief deity. So he entered the temple in Jerusalem. He sacrificed a pig, which was not supposed to be, well, pigs weren't even supposed to be in Israel, okay? He offered its blood on the altar of burnt offering. Then he erected a statue of Zeus, and he required the the Jewish priests to pay obeisance to the image, to worship it. This desecration of the temple brought all worship to an end. The Jews could no longer sacrifice the living God there until it was ceremonially purified according to the scriptures, which they did on December 25th, 165 BC. And then we have the celebration of Hanukkah as a result. But what about the second abomination of desolation that he spoke of that would occur after Christ? Of course, the second abomination of desolation was anticipated by Jesus. That's here in Matthew 24, verse 15. It's anticipated again by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and then lastly by John in the book of Revelation. The first one that occurred in 168 BC is somewhat of a a template to describe or define what an abomination of desolation would look like, what it is we should be looking for. There's some details about the first one that I believe are extremely important. He mentions a man, a sacrilegious act, an image being erected, a declaration of deity, and this coercion of others to worship contrary to their beliefs. It's all important. Now, some insist that when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD, that Jesus' words here in Matthew 24, 15 were fulfilled, fulfilled, okay? Now, historically, we have to agree that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, And that as Jesus said much earlier in the chapter, that the stones of the temple were thrown down, as it were. But what happened in 70 AD does not add up to an abomination of desolation, at least not as it's spoken of by Daniel, by Jesus, Paul, or John. One particular ministry of repute among Reformed Christians says that what happened in 70 AD is uncontrovertibly the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, but they provide no biblical or historical evidence in favor of their position. It's kind of embarrassing for some ministries that are so influential in the Christian community to just throw details out but not provide the real facts. In fact, in their article, they provided errors historically. I'll contact them later. It's incontrovertible. (laughs) When we look at the biblical data, though, we actually find a very consistent description of the abomination of desolation. Jesus, Paul, and John, they prophesied about something very similar to what Antiochus did in 168 BC. Jesus said that the abomination that causes desolation would be standing in the holy place. Now, some say the holy place can refer to the entire temple complex, including the outer courts that are not technically a part of the temple as described by the law of Moses. Okay, fine, let's grant that the holy place can be the entire temple complex. But what does Paul say about this? He says to the Thessalonians, (laughs) I like how he begins, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There's a few details there, okay? It'll be a man, 
who he calls the man of sin, the son of perdition, someone very much like Antiochus IV. He exalts himself above all that is called God. Antiochus considered himself the manifestation of the chief, the supreme deity, Zeus, supreme deity of the Greeks. And then he sits, takes his place in the temple, okay? The Greek word is naos. We'll look at that in a minute. And he shows himself that he is God. So this use of words from Paul, the word temple, as I said, it's the Greek word naos. The other common word that is translated as temple is huron. Now, real quick, Matthew, Paul, Luke. Now, remember, Luke was trained by Paul. All use these words consistently and distinctly. They use the word naos to refer to the sanctuary of the Jewish temple. And they use the word huron to speak of the whole temple precinct. That changes things big time. Paul tells us that this profane individual will commit his abominable act in the sanctuary of the temple. This detail, among others, it's important, and it contributes to the controvertible evidence, okay, that the Romans did not commit the abomination of desolation by placing their ensigns on the temple precinct way outside, way away from the sanctuary. Paul says that it will occur in the sanctuary, in the sanctuary. Also, historical fact, Titus the Roman, who led the siege against Jerusalem, he actually made an effort not to desecrate the temple. He forbade it, he forbade it. The soldiers did anyway, burning its combustibles and destroying its structure. And by that time, it was what it was, okay? But Titus the Roman, the general, he never stood or sat in the temple sanctuary to exalt himself as God. He never showed himself to be God, ever. And he never committed an act of desecration, not intentionally or unintentionally. If he had, actually, if he'd had it his way, the temple would have remained intact. It would have remained untouched and it would have continued to operate under Jewish control. That was his stated goal when he went to Jerusalem. It's very interesting. He doesn't do any of the things that Jesus and Paul say. There are two things in our previous list that Paul did not mention that we had started out with from describing Antiochus, an image being erected, nor the coercion of others to worship contrary to their beliefs. But what Paul doesn't mention, John does. It says in Revelation 13, and he deceived those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. That sounds almost exactly like Antiochus. And that's what he was doing in Jerusalem and the rest of Israel. Those that did not worship would die. If you circumcised your baby, according to Jewish law, you were executed. If you were found with copies of the Torah, you were executed. If you did not show obeisance to Zeus, you would be executed. Praise God for Mattathias and then his boys, especially his one boy, uh, Maccabee, the hammer. Yeah, good stuff. But here also, just as Jesus, Paul, and John, they talk about deception, signs, and wonders. But see, he also mentions an image, and then again, this coercive worship of the image. You guys, none of those things occurred in Jerusalem with Titus. This is not a first century thing. 
all of this stuff is pushed further into the future. According to scripture, this event has not happened. Let's get back to the text. Again, Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay. So again, Jesus' reference here to the holy place, it has to be the naos, the sanctuary, not some generic place on the temple precinct. When those living in Jerusalem at that time, Jesus says, when they, when they see for themselves the abomination of desolation, he says, you're to flee to the mountains. They're just to, they see it and they're to run for their lives. Another important historical detail is that by the time the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and breached the walls of the city and made it to the temple, it was days late for anyone to flee to the mountains. It sort of makes a mockery of Jesus's instruction if they couldn't follow them. You understand what I'm saying? And I don't think Jesus would do that, okay? There's gonna have to be a very different set of circumstances for people in Jerusalem to see the abomination of desolation and then have a chance to flee. It's gonna be very different than 70 AD. And Jesus is saying that this particular event will create such a state of urgency, of emergency. He says people should just stop what they're doing and they should flee. He says, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So what's this issue about people on their roofs? So especially in ancient Israel, the roofs were flat, parapet wall around, and outside of their house was a, a staircase that led down to the street of the city. So you could get onto anybody's roof, okay? because of the staircase. They didn't go down into their house. And so Jesus is basically saying, when you're, when you're evading the radiant heat inside your house in the evening, and this, you see this thing happen, he says, don't run down the stairs and then into your front door and grab your supplies and then make for the hills. He said, it's too dangerous. You don't have the time for that. He says, just get out, leave. And those working in the fields, having only their tunic on, he says, do not return to your home. Too much is at risk, just run. And he says, but woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So Jesus is just saying any hindrance will be too much of a hindrance. His heart goes out to pregnant nursing mothers who could likely be at home when their husbands are at work, won't have the time to wait for them. They won't be able to move as quickly as others. He says, pray that it's not during winter in Jerusalem. People say, well, what's the big deal about that? Have you ever seen Jerusalem get pounded with snow? Jerusalem is beautiful when it gets snowed on. But kind of like Centralia, the city's not ready for it. Our vehicles aren't ready for it. And it's just, things are crazy, right? You know this, it's crazy. Nothing to be prepared. And then they're to flee to the mountains in the winter. The elements would create challenges. The Sabbath will also create an obstacle at that time because Everything slows during the Shabbat, public transportation, roadways, other things could be closed, causing the exit plan to slow. But why the urgency? He says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So the level of tribulation that will follow as a result of the abomination of desolation, Jesus says this will be unparalleled in history. Has no equal, not before it and not after. 
Now, real quick, understand the abomination of desolation there in the sanctuary. It's not something that will simply affect the Jews, but believing Jews specifically. How that will unravel, I don't know all the details. But Jesus says that unless this great tribulation were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But he says, but for the elect's sake, that's believing Jews because of the context, they will be shortened. They'll have to be shortened so the elect will not be annihilated. And they can't be annihilated, all of them, because of what Jesus says in his illustration of the sermon. That that generation that sees those things will endure till the second coming. Okay? Not everybody, but some of them have to, these Jewish believers. So as Gentile believers across the globe are suffering severe persecution, those believers in Jerusalem will be subject to this man who commits the abomination of desolation. Not only will it create an urgency to flee, but it's also going to create an expectation from among the elect for the arrival of Messiah, the second coming, which is good, but because of the position they're in, they have to be careful. They, they cannot let their hope for Messiah blind their judgment, as Jesus explains. He says, then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. So at that time, Jesus, you know, he's instructed the believers to go into hiding, and there's going to be this attempt to draw them out. They're supposed to be in the mountains, and they want to draw them into the desert, okay? It will be communicated that Christ has come, that he's in one of these places, they should come out to meet him, and then there's going to be miracles and signs on display in an attempt to prove to the elect that Messiah has returned. But it's deception of the highest order. So Jesus warns them. He says, don't believe it. It's going to be so convincing that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Now this brings up an important detail. And I got to hurry here. Jesus says that there will be people performing great signs and wonders at that time. Paul actually says the same. Well, how do you combat somebody performing signs and wonders? Isn't that the most believable thing? Well, the scriptures tell us that signs and wonders are not the ultimate evidence that something is true or that someone is from God. Signs and wonders can be used as a tool to deceive. This has always been the case, and God has always warned his people about it. Deuteronomy 13 and 18, specifically in the law of Moses, and then instruction here, and Paul's in, in, in Thessalonians warn us about the dangers of using signs to determine what is true or what is from God. All of these passages tell us it's not what the prophet does. It's always, without exception, what the prophet says and teaches. We listen to what they say, not what, we don't look at what they do. If their teaching is not in harmony with scripture, they're a deceiver. I love what Isaiah the prophet said. He said, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If what they're preaching isn't coming out of the scriptures themselves, he says they're not sharing light. It's just darkness in them. Now, at very best, they could be ignorant, but they're most likely deceivers. And at that time, they'll be deceivers. Come back to the text for one full minute. Jesus is essentially saying that if anyone has to tell you that I've returned, I have not returned. Okay? 
Jesus' second coming will not be secret. It won't be concealed. No one will have to tell anyone that he's come. For or because or just as the lightning, when it comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, have you guys ever seen lightning that it doesn't come straight down, but it, it scatters across the sky? Usually that happens in deserts like Texas, Arizona. I've seen it a little bit in Wyoming. It's pretty impressive. Everybody sees it unless they're blind. And if they're blind, they hear it. And if they don't hear it, they feel it. Okay, so Jesus is saying, it's just going to be completely obvious. But then he drops this illustration. Not quite as clear. There's a lot of disagreement about it, about this whole issue of bodies carry-on and eagles or vultures. Let me tell you what I think. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus returns, he immediately goes to war to defend his people in the valley of Megiddo. He'll return to the Mount of Olives and then immediately make his way north to the valley for war. Isaiah 63, other places say that when he's done, the, the bodies of the enemy will be scattered across the landscape. And wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will be gathered the vultures will be eating the flesh of the wicked. That's what I think Jesus means. I mean, you know the story. Before, you know, David is standing before Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, there in the valley of Eli. He said to the giant, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. That's trash talk. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. David said, I'm going to prepare a meal for the birds and the beasts, and your body is on the menu. Okay. Well, in Revelation 19, an angel calls out to the birds in preparation for Jesus' return, saying, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. Jesus, when he returns, he will meet the man of sin in battle and all those with him who have opposed God and tried to annihilate his elect Israel. And after the battle, the birds will have their fill, not of the Philistines, who were the ancient arch enemy of Israel, well, the Palestinians, I guess they're current, you understand that Palestinian comes from the Latin Philistine. It's very interesting. There's history there. You can ask questions later. Very interesting how history unravels. The return of Christ and the immediate aftermath of his return will be known by all. I don't mean to be gruesome or whatever, but there will be a wake of bodies of the wicked who oppose God and his people. It's graphic, it's sobering, but it's identical to what Isaiah 63 depicts from that battle. But understand that when divine justice is unleashed on the wicked, it's going to be quick and thorough. And at that time, no one will say, what have you done? We will all see it for all that it is, and we will celebrate the death of evil. Amen. All right. So I got to be done, guys. We will look at the second coming of Christ later. Go ahead and stand up. I didn't do that on purpose. I promise. All right. Lord Jesus, we thank you again. Uh, you don't know just in general what's going to happen. You know every fine detail. And I pray that, again, as we said last week, this would comfort us as your people, knowing that our lives are in your hands, 
that you will cause us to stand before you spotless, Paris. Lord, we cannot be subject to the wrath of God because you endured all the wrath of God for us. So, Lord, we thank you. Again, Lord, I pray that as we see that the, the time is short for people, that we would take, well, that that reality would dawn upon us and that we would preach the gospel. So, Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.